And now lastly, to round out our program, we're going to talk about Tokyo Godfathers. And joining me are IC regulars Mark Yamada, the other co-director of International Cinema, and assistant director Maida Oscarson. Thanks both for being here. Good to be here. Great to be here. So Satoshi Kon, uh, we've been uh, featuring a couple films this semester, works by Satoshi Kon. This is a little bit different than the Millennium Actress that we showed earlier on in the semester. Um, I like that in the last few years that we've been exploring anime outside of Ghibli. I think that a lot of the, our regular viewers are familiar with Ghibli. Uh, they've kind of grown up with it in, in some ways. It's the, the better known of the uh, animes probably here in North America, but this is a really important director as well. Um, Mark, help us kind of place Tokyo Godfathers within uh, the work of Satoshi Kon and maybe within anime more generally. Yeah, it's, um, as you mentioned, it's very different from Millennium Actress, which we showed earlier in the semester, which a little bit like his other film, Paprika, is kind of use, utilizes a lot of kind of almost dizzying kind of editing effects, right? To mm-hmm blur the lines between fiction and reality and history. And in some ways, the, the speed at which he kind of incorporates these different techniques kind of gives you the sense that, you know, every moment is really composed of our, of our memories, of our kind of our virtual past, of our kind of, of our experience in the, um, in the physical present. And so that, I think it, that kind of is, is what's going on in, in some of these other films that he does. Tokyo Godfather is Tokyo Godfathers rather is a little bit of a different style of film, or at least a little bit of a, a thematically different than those other two films. It incorporates his kind of similar stylistics of a little bit of a, a muted color palette, a little more gritty, realistic, very different than kind of a Ghibli aesthetic. If you think about it, um, yeah, kind of grotesque figures in, in a way right. they're not beautiful or kind of and that's what I mean by grotesque is that there's something exaggerated kind of about them almost right yeah and really kind of brings um, to the forefront these characters who are homeless and it's really kind of this spin on a traditional nativity story right where you have mm-hmm. um, these three wise men it's a little bit of an ironic kind of using homeless characters in that role but a similar way in which they, you know, they find this child, and and the whole film is is them um, seeking to return this child uh, to its, its parents. As as they kind of travel around Tokyo, they in some ways visit some of the more marginalized populations of the of the city. You get immigrants who speak Spanish. You get members of the the mob. You get members of the LGBT community. Um, and so really kind of and what I what I think is really interesting about the story is oftentimes Christmas is treated very superficially, you know, in Japan and in some of these nations that are not Christian, you get a very kind of commercialized Christmas, um, almost kind of hyper real Christmas. Right. But with this film, in some ways, it kind of connects to maybe a, a Christian message here, which is, you know, visiting the marginalized and, and kind of allowing them to and kind of paying attention to their needs a little bit. And so um, there, it, it's a kind of a, a, like you said, kind of grotesque and kind of gritty and realistic, but there's a kind of warmth to it as well, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is is a nice element of his style that you don't see a lot of, but uh, in terms of Godfather, there's a little bit of a heart as well. 
One, one thing that really stood out to me about this film, and, and you know, we mentioned this in our, in our blurb on the poster this semester, uh, making this parallel back to shoplifters. Uh, there seemed like just a really obvious parallel back to, you know, to shoplifters, this interest in alternative families, right, and kind of alternative kind of social connections. This is, you know, comes out in the early 2000s. Is this a direct reaction, do you think, to a, a perceived shift in, you know, maybe not just Japanese culture, but modern culture more generally in the way that it kind of isolates us? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think I mentioned in, in talking about Parasite, um, this idea of this kind of top-down family, a family that's a product of economic forces and kind of these, these normalized families that were kind of at the center of, of Japanese culture uh, during its kind of economic growth. And of course, here you get kind of like in Shoplifters, a found family, a family kind of comes together, as you mentioned, with these, these different kind of social connections, right? That, were, that, are, that are not based on um, kind of a formula for, for creating a family with a, you know, a father who's a business a salary man and you have a mother who stays at home and two kids, you know, this nuclear family. But that kind of experimentation you see in some ways as maybe a counterbalance to this of, of drawing attention to these kind of collectives that are not a product of kind of states and, and, and kind of top-down economic forces. You know? What do you make out of the, um, the, the use of, of Christmas as a holiday where accounts are settled somehow? I, one thing that really strikes me in this film is the way that everything comes together, right? That this baby represents in in some pretty explicit ways as a kind of angel it's a deus ex machina you know kind of coming in and it it pulls all of these strands together in these pretty remarkable you know sorts of ways yeah there's a lot of that kind of chance meeting and and things that are kind of coming together and it seems like you know the homeless the three homeless friends kind of initiate a lot of this right of, of, of kind of breaking up uh, suicide attempts of, of, of bringing the child back. And it, it seems like it's ultimately their, their good grace, right? That allows mm -hmm. kind of, you know, a cause and effect to kind of create this feeling. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting in the way in which, you know, it really comes this good grace and this kind of Christmas spirit comes from the people that were least expecting it to come from, but they're, they're able to kind of spread this through the city and allow for, for good things to happen. Yeah, so it, it kind of an interesting spin. I, I like the way in which, in this, sometimes you'll see this, you know, we get used to kind of American Christmas stories, but it's sometimes nice to see Christmas stories told from different traditions and how they they get a sense of the essence. Uh, of yeah. You know, even though we think they don't really understand what Christmas is about, there's an interesting spin that almost kind of gets to the heart of, of what really Christmas and the Christmas spirit and, you know, beyond all the commercialism is really about. So anyway, maybe a, maybe a more fitting film for for the fall semester towards the end, but... Um... Yeah, that's, that's right. Okay, well, so I, I have a question, and I don't know if you'll have a, a ready answer for this. What's up with the dancing buildings at the end? <laughs> it seemed so out of character from the rest of the film. I was just kind of like, what? You know, that and yeah. Beethoven's Ninth, you know, that kind of yeah. intrudes. I mean, I guess I can kind of understand Beethoven, Beethoven's Ninth as a kind of an anthem about the universality of humanity, and right. I, I'm not sure. It seemed a little bit out of place, too. But, but the you dancing know, it, buildings particularly. Yeah, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I, this is kind of some of his fantasy coming in. I don't know. Maybe it's he's reminding us that this is, you know, because a lot of it is so gritty and realistic that he's reminding us of these kind of animation kind of flourishes that he can bring in. So I don't know. Um, yeah. That's a good question. It does kind of creep in on the in the end there. Where you, yeah, you have this kind of strange scene, kind of closing scene. But yeah, I mean, 
but, but there is a little bit of fantasy throughout, right? I mean, the way in which they, you know, see sure. the baby and then the baby has this really weird moment where it looks into the camera and says, I want to go home, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some interesting choices here. Where, and you know, I think in some ways an animation can allow for that, you know, that those kind of strange little moments that, that live action might, uh, you know, have us scratching our head a little bit, that there are these kind of strange yeah. things that aren't always explained. So. Okay. Well, w- one last question for you about this, uh, Mark, is how do you understand the end of this film? Because after exploring these alternative family structures, this idea of love coming from unexpected places, um, these unique connections in society, what we're left with at the end, after all, are very traditional families, right? Mm. Um, the baby is returned to the parents. Mi Koki, is that is that her name? That she's returned to her uh, to her father. There's a reconciliation there, um, and there's this phrase that, or this this quote from the middle where where they say a baby's better off with its real mother is the and and we're not sure if we're supposed to understand that ironically or not um at one point but we are returned back to the the biological family at the end Mm, that's a good point there is kind of this normalcy right that returns because of them i you know that when who was it that said that i think it was the um the lgbt character right um in the yeah i'm forgetting his name, but I, Hi, uh, Haku. Yeah, I you know. I almost read that or, or interpreted that as almost kind of a self-loathing of, of their realization that they don't belong somehow, mm-hmm. kind of normal culture, and that they they want to kind of return this baby. They don't feel like they're you know worthy to to raise this child because they don't belong to this standard family. So, I mean, that's a good point. There is a, a little bit of a kind of reinforcing of this kind of status quo, this kind of conservative view of the family. Whereas the, you know, throughout the whole film, there is more kind of experimenting with these different things that in some ways the, the family is reconstituted, though maybe not traditionally or maybe not even kind of completely, right? I mean, there is still... Um, I mean, yeah, maybe we've questioned it enough you right. know, through the film that we can't take it totally without right. a grain of salt. Right. Okay, you know, help me because I've seen this movie a long time ago and I was not going to comment on it because it's not so, so fresh in my mind. But do I remember well that the couple whose baby was, was taken away, stolen, who has suffered grief and loss, when the baby is returned, I, I seem to remember that this couple is totally accepting of the homeless characters who are returning their baby with with a lot of gratefulness and it feels that they are welcoming them in their lives in some ways do i remember that well because that was striking to me if that's a real memory that that with that change in their heart that suffering that they encountered and that loss and all of a sudden the help that they received from those three characters um something was changed in that traditional family and their eyes were open to the value of the the outcast of society in in some ways yeah that's a good point i i think that we don't know a lot about them but i think they just come in at the end and we see them reunited with their baby and i think there is a mention that you know it was three homeless people and they said we want to thank them and so there is like you said there is that kind of acceptance right of these members of society that are not so yeah i mean i mean maybe not so much a complete reinvention of, of family in, in Soplifters, there's a little bit more of that, right? Almost kind of really questioning, not the value, but really questioning, you know, really showing us these kind of non-traditional families. But here kind of not necessarily uh, 
disabling that completely, but maybe kind of revitalizing it or renewing it through this intervention of these kind of um, marginalized characters. So yeah. Um, anyway, interesting, fun anime to to end up this the the semester. You know, we'll we'll hopefully get some some Ghibli back and and uh, be able to contrast with these different styles. But it's good to see how you know sometimes we have this idea of anime being this or you know, and I, we've been using the word anime a lot, and I, I, it's kind of my fault, but um, a lot of these directors actually resist being called, their work being called anime, which is kind of strange, particularly Miyazaki doesn't like the word anime. What is the term that they would prefer well, to be? They like anime, um, and I think what, the reason is because anime has be kind of taken on a little bit of this mass-produced you know, commercialized thing um, that they kind of see their work, particularly Miyazaki, as being a little bit more of a, a rarefied form of animation. And so I think he, I mean, you know, and I, I think it's, it's probably particular to him that he likes being known as kind of Japanese animation. But we, we tend to, I think, in America, have an umbrella term for, for Japanese a, uh, animation as anime. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. We'll keep our eyes on this. Well, now let's, for the last couple minutes of this uh, podcast, I wanted us to to take a step back as the directors of IC and reflect a little bit on the semester that has been. Uh, we find ourselves at the end of you know yet another semester. It's been uh, it's been quite a semester, kind of unprecedented in in several ways. Not the least of which that we you know for the last four weeks of the semester needed to, to shift to a, a little bit different format. What are some of the things that really stand out to you about successes this semester, films that maybe uh, will kind of linger with you, that as we put them in the schedule, you saw them in a new way? Uh, what are your thoughts? Marietta, do you want to start? Oh, sure. I want to start talking about the Anthropocene uh, cinema series that was offered this semester at IC. I thought it was so diverse and really showed the impact of humankind on the planet and as well how people are affected by those changes. So going from Chile to the Arctic, suffering in the cold with some some of our characters there, <laughs> to um to Honeyland this week that we got permission from our distributors to to stream for our BYU students and faculty and staff. I think Honeyland is is what is staying with me this semester. Sticking with you, so to speak, right? Absolutely, yes. Like this golden honey. Aticha, she really is the star of of this documentary. And um, the way that she threads so lightly in her life, not only with her relationship, in her relationships with people, but as well with the wild bees that she keeps and, and loves. That is a, a lasting message to me. I think that documentary, the contrast with the way of life of the family that comes and their her neighbors for, I don't know how long, because I think it took three years to film this documentary. But so it's not just like a season. I think they stayed longer. I think I, unfortunately, I, I see myself in them. Like they leave so much trash behind them. I mean, I'm not saying that this is me, but I mean, I live in a society that's like marked that way. Mm. Um, they are not careful with the animals that they are caring for. I see children who are fighting and are not finding their place in, in that family and in the world. 
I see them in danger as well of the elements around them and um, the relationships as well. And then I see Atija and how caring she is, and that's who I want to be. So this is th- this semester. That's what that's the lasting uh, influence that I I feel from our program. Mark, how about you? Yeah, well, I think it's it's fair to say that we were taken a little off guard by the tsunami <laughs> <laughs> for Jojo Rabbit and Parasite. For me, it was kind of a nice blast from the past. I mean it. It reminded me of being at International Cinema back in the you know '90s, and you know sitting outside and waiting in line and having filmed kind of be an event. So I, I really enjoyed, um, even though it was a lot of work and we had to, um, in some ways, <laughs> resort to more draconian methods to keep <laughs> <laughs> from sneaking into the theater. Oh it was, yeah, it was fun to see that kind of, particularly with Parasite, and to have you know 900 people or however many we had at that one screening at the JSB on Saturday night, to have all these people attend a foreign film in Korean, you know, to read subtitles and and to have people show up like that, I think was amazing. And it really kind of spoke to what Bong, um, when he accepted the Academy Award for Parasite said, he said something that really I think is perfect for international cinema is that, you know, if you can get over the, the trouble of having to read you know, uh, subtitles, there's some really amazing films out there. And so I think that's a really, you know, a testament to that, 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 that people want to see good film and um, can kind of get over whether they, you know, be black and white or subtitles that in these things that kind of American audiences are often turned off by, that, that it's possible to really have um, that kind of showing for the foreign film it was really uh, fun to see. Well, and something that I really liked with the Parasite showing particularly, I noticed afterwards, you know, that this film, you know, has kind of a shocking conclusion, I, I suppose I can, can say. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of people that were, were grouped up and talking about it afterwards, which I love to see, you know, that that's one of the, the real powers of being able to watch cinema together is that we're able to discuss it with each other and, and talk about it and reason and, and try and, you know, and think our way through and, and I just love seeing that, that taking place. You know, I see that in the class going on. I teach the international cinema class this semester. And uh, it's, it's fun to see, you know, students wrestling with things that are strange to them and, and are different and, and, and challenging. And, um, you know, sometimes coming with new insights about the way the world is and the way the, the world operates. Yeah. And, I, and I hope that our IC spectators will and students will come with that curiosity to our yeah. films because some films are very challenging, but the fact that um, they can discuss it or listen to the podcast or, or just with their friends or whoever, but discuss the issues at hand and find some interest, even in the most obscure films. I really hope that that this kind of interest will will be seen in the semesters to come. Yeah. I think for me, some of the other, Marito, you mentioned the Anthropocene Cinema Series. This is a, a particular interest of mine. And I really liked the, the kinds of films that we were able to come up with that, that got us to think about our relationship with the world in a different kind of way and avoided a kind of overtly polemical, you know, sort of uh, environmentalist, you know, a, approach, rather thinking more holistically about the way that we relate and interact a, a, a mini series, I guess you could almost call it, that I think sticks out to me too is the War and Peace series. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we haven't really pursued showing these longer format films before. I mean, eight hours of film can be really daunting, and 
it was fun to go back to this film and, you know, something from the 60s. And, you know, what an amazing work of cinematic art uh, it is. And to be able to see that on the big screen, I, I was, you know, thankful that International Cinema invited me to, you know, to consider that and, and to do that and then to have the benefit of, you know, Mark Purvis and others from the Russian department who lent their expertise to talk about that both here on the podcast and the lectures. Yeah, I just, I was really appreciative of, of that. I guess, lastly, the, the thing um, I'll take away too, and this isn't meant to be a pat on, on my own back, but I'm pleased with what the podcast was able to, to do, uh, largely because of participation of, you know, of Mark and, and Mari Lor here with me now, but as well, um, all the guests that have been on through this semester, we have such an amazing collection of faculty and the, the resources here at the university are, are really amazing. And the generosity of people to be willing to come and, you know, watch a film and, and talk about it has been a great experience for me. I feel like I've gotten a lot more out of the films, you know, from having had the chance to discuss it with, with all of you. Definitely, yes, to me too. Well, that's our show for today and for the semester. Uh, this will be the last episode for what is now our third season, but we hope to be back again in the fall with another lineup of engaging, artistic, and thought-provoking films. Uh, whether you're on BYU campus or listening from afar, thank you for joining us and for being part of the conversation. From the Booth is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. Thank you to Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, our sound engineer, and the staff at the Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Best of luck with finals for all you students. Until this fall, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your eyes open for great films. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Marilor. Thank you. Have a great